So when I was growing up, I was real scared um, of the rapture. I've talked about this before, but I was real scared of the rapture. The rapture is the, the time where, where, Christ, where Christ is going to return. Um, there, are, there are several words used in Scripture that refer to the end of days. Um, but but when, we, when we speak of the end times, uh, that was a really popular teaching uh, uh, subject matter for teaching in, in my formative years and growing up. And I was scared of it. And I think I was scared of it the same way you're scared if, you're, if your mom shows up. Okay, if your mom comes home early and you've converted the kitchen into a gym, you know, like, and you thought she was going to be home at 8 and it's 5 and you're a teenager and y'all, you've turned the whole house into a gymnasium or you've got some game going and, and I just imagine some kid might have done something like this. And so... Um, you know, or, or, or where, oh, no, we're going to be caught. Or, uh, this, or, or when a mom would say to a kid, uh, you wait until your dad gets home. I felt like a lot of times the, the, the second coming of Jesus was sort of, I had that feeling. I don't know that it was put on me by pastors and teachers. I just always felt like there's this, what can I get away with until if I just knew when Jesus was coming back, I could live like the devil. And in about 48 hours out, boy, we could ship shape, and get right and pray it up and get some holy water, whatever, you know, bad theology and, uh, and didn't understand that, that really, and we've seen this in Second Peter, this is what we're working for. This is what we're striving for. This is what we're hastening to. This is good news. But for some people, um, good news uh, can be scary news. See, the gospel is only good news to those that it reaches in time, right? The gospel is only good news to those who surrender to it. I was talking to my mom recently and, uh, Last year, right before COVID hit, my mom and my sister and several family members were going to rent one of those RVs that you rent and you drive around and then you return it. It's like so much a day. I think the Duns did that a few years ago. It's an awesome idea. I want to do that one time. Uh, they were going to do this trip out west. They're going to make the loop, you know, Yellowstone, uh, Rushmore. They're going to do the loop. Well, when I was a kid, we drove from Canton, North Carolina, just up the road here, to Southern California for my dad's work. And we drove it in a three-speed on the floor Chevrolet Chevette. This was in 1981 with no air conditioning. And we drove across the Southern Arizona and New Mexico deserts. And I remember my mom, when we had a cooler in the back of that thing full of ice water, and we'd dip our shirts and it ring them out and put them on. And they would just, you'd get hot and dry out. And my mom was like, I, I don't want to, she was dreading this trip out west. And she was going, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. And I couldn't figure out, like I've been to, man, I've, I've been through the Salmon River Valley and Snake River Canyon, and I've hunted in the Tetons, and I've traveled through the Rockies. And I'm like, been to Moab and Four Corners. Why, like, why would you not want to go to these places? And then one day I'm having a conversation with her and she goes, that when we did that, it was the worst trip of my life. And I was like, oh, you mean the Chevette in the desert in July? Yeah, 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 okay. This is not like that. This is different. This is, but there was this misconception that she was kind of hanging on this experience. It made her dread the idea of it. But what, what she needed was to see pictures and video to get clarity of what the Salmon River Valley looks like this time of year. What Yellowstone is like in May or June or July when the wildflowers first start to come, you know, and show themselves. She needed to see a better picture. What a lot of us need when it comes to understanding the wonder of the return of Christ is we need a better picture. We need to understand that this is not the thing of mythology. This is not the thing that, that's like to be a brow-beating battering ram to whip 
young Christians into legalistic shape. But this is something that does bring with it a sense of urgency that, hey, yeah, one day, and it could be any time, the return of the Lord is imminent, that Jesus is going to appear. And when he does, he's going to appear as our judge and as our Savior. So Peter wants his readers to understand that. I remember as a kid that the texts and the passages that would also often be used to describe this. Remember, remember the one about the ten virgins? Remember that? It just confused me. Let me read it to you. It's from um, one of the Gospels. It's actually Matthew 25. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went, into, and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. I remember as a kid thinking, well, okay, so there's a dude, and he's got 10 people he's engaged to, but five of them have got these lamps. I, mean, I was just confused at this point, right? Okay, but it's okay. Just listen. It gets more confusing. At midnight, the cry rang out. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Now, Jesus told us that parables the parables that he wrote were written so that we could have biblical truth enlightened and come to understanding but if you if you're not spiritually minded you don't have the spirit of god then the parables don't enlighten you they could confuse you or freak you out or scare you and i remember thinking like what does this story mean like and then the preacher I remember this preacher in this revival and he's red in the face and he's and he preached on this and he's like and i'm like i'm not a i'm Am I the virgin? Am I the, the lamp? Am I the, oil? Am I the five virgins? Or the other, like, and we're just being confused and thinking, what does this mean for me? And so tonight, what I'm, what I'm hoping, and that, and that story, that parable that Jesus told for the believer is a wonderful parable that gives us insight. But for the church, Peter, remember, is writing his last words to the church, and he's saying, I want to help you walk out your Christianity and prepare for the return of Christ, because I'm going to leave you but I want you to prepare for the return of Christ. So just a few verses tonight, just a few verses beginning in verse 11 of 2 Peter chapter 3. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, so that's a reference back to um, what we saw last week, that there's going to be this dissolution, this dissolving of the world, destruction of the world by fire. What sort of people ought you to be? And lives of holiness and godliness. So uh, he uses the word all, which implies that there's an obligation for the believer. Like as Christians, we believe that we're saved by grace. We live by grace. We walk by faith, not by sight. Grace and faith guide us. But there are some alts in our life. That's not legalism, but we're called to walk in a certain manner. Paul would say, walk in a manner of life worthy of the gospel. So it's not, we're, we don't, you're not teaching works as a means of salvation to say, hey, there's a certain, there's a certain standard a Christian should live by. There's a certain way that a Christian should walk out his faith. I was talking to some students this weekend and talking about how a lot of people, they shun away from the church because they hate the hypocrisy of Christians. But y'all realize that 
it doesn't matter what arena of life you go into, there's hypocrite. Everyone's hypocritical. Like people are hypocrites. The idea of hypocrisy means you put a mask on to hide what's really on the inside. Christians don't have the market on that. We don't have the corner on that. You can go to, you can go to um, Monte Alban tonight, or you can go to Ingalls Grocery Store, and you're, going, everybody, you're passing people that in some form or fashion are putting a mask on. It's what people did. Hide the hurt, hide the fear, hide the pain, hide the depression or the anxiety. People are hiding things. It's let me put on the mask. We see it on an, on an uptick and a high, much higher scale today with social media so prevalent. You can paint whatever picture you want for yourself. You can look thinner. You can give yourself a little cheek definition. You can push them lips out. You can look really good. You're like, you can do whatever you want. You recreate yourself. But it's just a mask. And that word hypocrisy in the New Testament was the idea that in those old days and stage plays, they'd put a big mask on that would be like the size of their torso. It carried this mask around so that the people in the back of the auditorium could see and separate and distinguish the players. Well, as Christians, we live authentically. Man, one thing that should be true of us is that we're real with each other. We're transparent with each other. We're living life together, man. We're confessing our sin to one another. We're encouraging one another. And we're bearing one another's burdens. You'll see this teaching in Scripture. Like Paul says to the Galatians, bear one another's burdens. And in doing this, you'll fulfill the law of Christ. So we ought to live a certain way. Now, he goes on and he describes what that, what that way of living ought to be. You ought to be in lives of holiness and godliness. So he uses these two things, holiness and godliness. Peter spoke about holiness in the first letter. Go back to 1 uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Since it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So what does that look like? What does it mean? Well, in, John, in 1 John 1, 3, which would be just like one page over in your Bible, it says, that, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. There's a lot of ways that we could describe and define holiness. There are biblical definitions. There are exegetical definitions. There are um, definitions that we might use to understand holiness doctrinally. But listen, practically speaking, to live in holiness is to live in fellowship with Jesus. Not just he saved me. That's, that's good. That's awesome. As Christ followers, we have the spirit of God living in us and our salvation comes from him. But, but do we strive daily to walk in the light as he is in the light? To live in fellowship. What is fellowship? Communion, friendship, a bond with Christ where we lean on him daily to walk and live in holiness. Then he uses the word godliness, which just means to live in a reflection of who God is so we live like Jesus. So with holiness and godliness, we've got this idea of walking in sacred fellowship with Jesus, emulating him, emulating him. You ever been around somebody and, and maybe you're this person and they're, you realize they're emulating, they've been influenced by someone else. You'll see this with preachers sometimes, you see with teachers or coaches. Like we have the opportunity to emulate Jesus, to be like Jesus. That's how we strive for godliness. How do we do that? So how, like practically, how do we do that? With our time, with our thoughts, with our gifts, with our abilities, with our treasures. 
That's, that's its own sermon right there. I'd love to preach that sermon right there. I scratched off a ton of notes on that, just, but we're not going to go there. But what, what holiness and godliness looks like, walking in fellowship with Jesus, emulating him, where that will be reflected is not in our piety. You know what piety is? It's religious presentation. Do I present myself religiously? Do I present myself as someone who, how ought I to live? Well, you should present yourself a certain way. Well, listen, here's what it comes down to. How, how, what, what, do my, what do my thoughts look like? What do I treasure in this life? What am I doing with my gifts, my resources, my abilities, and my opportunities? A person who's walking in holiness and godliness is going to be capitalizing on those things to love people well and advance the gospel and grow in holiness. Verse 12. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Everything, all that God has made, all of creation, when we think about the future and the coming kingdom of Jesus, we have to recognize that there's going to be a drastic change that's coming. I mean, what we're talking about is that the existing heaven and earth are going to be replaced with a new one. And he uses this, this terminology of destruction. But in the Bible, if you, if, you, if you start in Genesis, which we're going to do, we, is that a secret? Ah, yeah, we're going to study Genesis. All right, so uh, it's got hot and sweaty. I'm bad about that. Uh, so Genesis starts with the garden, a creation, and everything is good. Indeed, it is very good. You see this in Genesis 1 and 2, repeated over and over. And God looked at what he had done, and it was good. And God looked at what he's done, and it's, it's good, and it's good, and it's good. Then we see the fault, but if you go to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, at the end of that, we see a new creation that parallels and reflects that first creation. The idea being that what happens in the middle is that what was good was broken. What was pure was made was distorted and perverted. God's plan became a plan of redemption and restoration and reconciliation. But one day, he's going to destroy everything that's broken and bring into existence a perfect creation of heaven and earth, of sky and sea. It's going to be perfect. So that's what we're, that's what we're looking towards. That should drive three things in our lives. Three, we, we, should, we should think about the future and the coming kingdom of Jesus with a few characteristics. Let me give you three. The first one is with urgency. Urgency. We're living currently under a period of grace and patience on the Lord, on, on the Lord's part. We talked about this last week. When you look around, you're like, why, why, is, why doesn't God deal with that? Why doesn't God deal with that? those atrocities? Why doesn't God intervene in this situation? We're living in a season of time where, this is hard to reconcile in our minds, the world is broken, the world is dark. Many people in this church have suffered abuse as children, addiction as teens or adults, have been wronged at different times. But what's happening is that God is not failing to intervene. God has a plan and a purpose to take what is disjointed and put it back together, to take what is dislocated and put it back in socket. But what we're experiencing right now is an extended season of his patient grace towards humanity where we have a responsibility to take the gospel to the world to tell people now is the time to repent behold now is the day of salvation because there's coming a day when every person will give an account for their actions so we live with urgency we reflect on the situation and live in light of the future coming of Jesus next 
what this should this should uh, drive us to motiv- to be motivated. This is one of the characteristics of life. Now is motivation. We can sh- be sure of the inevitability of meeting our Creator and our Judge because when Jesus comes again, we're going to give an account. Unbelievers are going to give an account. And Jesus is going to stand in in a position as Judge over the living and the dead. So if you're here tonight and you're not a Christ follower, that the patience of God is being extended to you right now to call on the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved. And it's so simple, even a caveman could do it, I think. Depends on how, depends on, I don't don't believe in evolution, so I believe a caveman was like Adam and and Seth and those boys, you know, so. (laughs) I mean, left the garden, went into the caves. They understood the gospel. It's simple as this. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It's not like, how do I pay my penance? How, where do I remove a pound of flesh? I mean, I got a couple places that we could get rid of. That'd be awesome. You know, like, but no, it's simply a confession of the Lordship of Christ and, and, and a surrender to him as we turn from our old ways. So we should be motivated in light of the fact that we're going to one day face our judge and that we're going to give an account for our lives. And then this should also bring about the characteristic of hope. Peter said that we have a living hope. Our hope is alive, man. Our hope is not like, you ever buy a scratch-off ticket? I have never bought one. I'm not, I'm not being condescending or judgmental or like holier than thou. I just never bought one. I don't even know why. I think because I was, it was beat into me as a kid that if you buy that, you'll go straight to hell or something. You know, like, I don't know. Like, but I never have some. I know some of you buy them. And all I'm saying is this. If you win the lottery and you're a member of Red Oak Church, you have an obligation to pay everyone's house payment and pay off their debt. And if they got a car payment, do that too. And then let's fund some more missionary work, Right. We're not talking about hope, like, oh, we, we hope in Jesus. And I hope that when I scratch this off, I'll win a couple grand. You know, no, it's a different kind of hope, right? We go to the ballot and we hope in the outcome of an election. I never get political here. We never get political here. I got to tell you one joke. Last week, we were, we were voting for, a lot of y'all voted for Tuck. He was in a, he was in a, he was nominated the top 10 wide receivers in the state um, who were all seniors, were put into a category, these top 10, the top four, then it becomes a fan voting thing. So the top four vote getters go to the, to the state all-star team. So a group of us, me and Spencer and Rob, Sean, um, Blair, as a group of us sat around for about an hour voting because you could vote as many times as you wanted. We, we, we rocked out about 800 votes, maybe 1,000 votes, and at some point somebody said, I feel like a Biden Democrat. <laughs> That's a bad joke. It's a bad joke. I'm not political. I'm just saying. But, <laughs> but when you vote for your candidate, whoever it is, let, let me tell you something. Don't put your hope in political candidates. Don't think that this guy or the next guy is going to win the day or that the last guy ruined it. Like we serve a sovereign creator who's got a plan, and our job is to work inside of human history in preparation for his return, his coming. Oh, man, I'm going to hear it for that one. I couldn't help it. I didn't make the joke, by the way. I just heard it and shared it with you. Okay, there we go. Verse 13. Uh, look, like our, our, our group is divided, and a bunch of people right now are going, yeah, and a bunch of people are going, oh, we'll see if we come back to this church. Oh, if that's where they're going to go. <laughs> like, just, just, it was just, 
We just don't take yourself too serious. Okay, all right. Verse 13. Waiting for the hasten, uh, I'm sorry, uh, but according to the promise, uh, to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now he gives us an explanation of what this new heaven and this new earth is going to be like. The reminder and warning of destruction is followed by the promise that God is going to make all things new. This is what happens to you when you become a Christian. You're made new. You're given a new heart. You're given a new, um, a, a new, a new mind. You're given a new existence as a believer. In the Christian life, we go through trials, and we've learned a lot from this in recent studies in Peter, and sometimes God spares us from trials, but sometimes he takes us through the trials. So he's saying, listen, we're going to live out our days in, in a world that is broken, and because of that, we're going to have to go through the trials sometimes. I saw an article this past week. They were studying one of those hurricanes down in the Gulf, and they sent out this drone that's a floating drone, and they sent that dude right into the eye of the hurricane. Anybody see that? It's crazy. That drone's just rocking back and forth and filming. It was like 85-foot waves. And I thought, how crazy would it be to be in the middle of that? And if you can imagine that sometimes in this life, God takes us through the storm, right? He takes us through the fire, but, but he's in me, and I'm in him, and we're going to be fine. And, and, and maybe it's not an, a happy ending in the moment, but we know what the future holds. So Peter's pointing us to this future hope. Uh, and, and ultimately what that future hope is, a place of renewal and a place of justice. Renewal and righteousness. Righteousness and justice being interchangeable in the scripture. Look what he says in verse 13. But according to this promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth. Imagine a place of renewal. Let's, th- let's, just, let's just think about this for a minute. Imagine a creation where no child is inappropriately touched. Imagine a a place where no child is physically or sexually abused. If we just took that one thing, let that sink in. Imagine a place where identity politics don't exist, where sexuality is not redefined because we believe what God says and submit to it. Imagine a place where no one becomes addicted to methamphetamines, prescription medications, or loses their life to that addiction. Imagine a place where no one ever dies. Imagine a place where cancer doesn't exist, where husbands and wives aren't separated after 50 years of marriage by death, Imagine a place where we don't talk about COVID because it no longer has an impact on our society. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Then I'm going to come and get you and bring you to be with me. Y'all, the second coming of Jesus is the greatest thing we could ever imagine. And we should look forward to it. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be wonderful. He's going to put everything Right, it's going to be a place of renewal. Revelation twenty-one one says, "I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first having, uh, for the first having, the first earth, first heaven and first earth had passed away." And then he says, "Righteousness dwells." The word literally means that justice dwells. Righteousness dwells. It means that it encompasses and reigns and stabilizes and permeates and surrounds us and is always present. Think about what we recognize most in this world. What we recognize most on a day-to-day basis is pain, hardship, death. We recognize what's wrong more than we recognize what's right. 
Why? Because we were created in God's image for eternity. So anything outside of his original purpose screams at us. It evokes emotion. It, it repulses us when someone dies, when someone's hurt. Well, we're, he says righteousness dwells. That word dwell, it's, a, it's, it's the same word that describes the dwelling of the Holy Spirit among the people of God in the Old Testament. That's what heaven's going to be like. And he says, and this will be our home. It'll be our home. He's literally, this is where we're going. He's preparing us this place where we will go and dwell and live. And in the last couple of verses, it says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. Really funny. Um, that part right there, he's saying, okay, me and Paul, y'all know we're tight. Now, I know that sometimes it's hard to understand that dude. And that's, sometimes the New Testament is so real. It's like, I got a friend, his name's Paul. He's really smart. You guys know I used to be a fisherman. So, it's always funny when somebody will say to me, man, I like when you preach. I can just understand you. And in my mind, I'm going, mm, <laughs> he's as simple-minded as me. <laughs> you know, like, like, I feel you, man. I know what you're saying. You just dumb it down. You know, like, like but there's, there's those people, like, if you, like within the body of Christ, there are those who understand, who have a deeper understanding of deeper things. And man, I appreciate people like that. I lean on people like that. Peter's saying, man, there's some stuff Paul says I do not understand, but I'll tell you right now, that dude is legit. <laughs> what he says is the word of, it's scripture. Like it, he's, he's comparing Paul's words to Old Testament scripture. And he's saying, I know it can be hard to handle, but, what he's, but he's warning, don't just try to make it mean what you want it to mean. Because there's some people doing that. Don't do that. When you get to the place in Scripture where there's mystery, embrace the mystery with what you do know to be true. And he says this in verse 14. He says, listen, we should live lives that are above reproach. We should be diligent to live in a way that when Jesus shows up, we can stand before him and say, man, I did not get it perfect, but I'm ready to see you. I'm ready to see you. Live in light of his coming. He says, you do that, you will be at peace. Peace is something that we are promised as believers. And oftentimes, believers will point out that in their darkest trial, they felt an overwhelming peace and presence of the Lord that stabilized them. Have you had that experience? We got a, a young man in our church who, in the last month, his mom has been diagnosed with cancer, and his dad just spent the weekend in the ER. They were convinced he was having a heart attack. And I talked to his dad today, and I said, how you doing? Peace. Where's that come from? Does the world get that? Like a person that doesn't have the hope of the gospel, when they face those things, you know what they experience? Panic. Fear. Anxiety. Listen, dear brother and sister, in your dark hour of trial, you will have peace that Paul describes to the Philippians from a jail cell where he's awaiting death. You'll never, it'll go beyond your understanding. I don't know why I feel like this, but I'm good with it. I'm good with it. Peter reminded his readers that though some of these things will be hard to understand, we need to consider that 
the truth in the middle of it is understandable. Jesus is returning, establishing a kingdom, making all things new, making all things right, binding up wounds, healing broken hearts, giving us more than we could ever imagine in an eternal existence with him. When we think of the end of times, I've got to read this. It's a, it's a little bit funny. I've got to read this from R.C. Sproul, who's one of my, one of my favorites. Um, I, love, I love to read R.C. Sproul. Uh, he said, <laughs> I was on a television program once with Hal Lindsey. Now, I don't know if you know who Hal Lindsey is. I don't know him real well, but I think he was real big into the end times. I've not read or studied him, but I think he was real into end times. I was on a television program once with Hal Lindsey, the author of the book, The Late Great Planet Earth. He spoke excitedly to the program host about the goings-on in the Middle East. He pointed to some prophetic messages in the Old Testament and said, uh, passages in the Old Testament said, these prophecies are going to take place literally, so we must not interpret them figuratively or symbolically. He went on to talk uh, about theologians who water down the Bible by taking away the literal meanings and substitute them with something less. He referenced a prophecy about the earth being consumed by giant grasshoppers. And then he said that Sikorsky helicopters are the fulfillment of that prophecy. I looked at him and said, Mr. Lindsay, if you want to be literal, shouldn't we be looking for grasshoppers instead of helicopters? We have to be careful how we handle the word of God. Don't overthink it. Just know this. Jesus has written the script. He's got a plan. He's going to deal with it in his time on his terms. And we can be excited about that. And take hope in that. Be confident in that. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we reflect on your word and respond to your word, you would give us hope and peace, a peace that might even pass understanding. God, I pray that uh, tonight you would, in, in this body of believers, in this church, you would speak to hearts and minds. And God, give, give, uh, give us what we need, each one of us. God, I'm sure there are those tonight that are in a trial or a difficult situation, a struggle, a difficult time. God, I pray that you might speak to them. I pray for those that don't know you, that haven't put their faith and their trust in you. God, that, uh, that, they, would, that they would turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, for the renewal and reconciliation that comes, the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, as Paul writes to Titus. God, I pray tonight that we would not be in, that we would not live in dread of anything you're going to do because as your sons and daughters, we look to you as a living hope and help us to be excited about what the future holds. I do pray that we would live on mission with urgency, motivated to reach the world with the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.